Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode discusses topics around domestic violence. If this information is distressing for you or if you need support in regard to sexual assault, domestic violence or family violence, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. We inevitably find ourselves in the middle of a storm throughout a business life. You're never going to avoid that. But how to weather it is what separates you from the rest of us. Ira Smith is the founder of one of the biggest things to shake up the makeup industry in terms of innovation. The Quick Flick. That's what it's called. And this business is best known for its winged eyeliner tool and it works by simply stamping the makeup on. Of course... This has made her extremely popular. She's probably shaved off 20 minutes getting ready time in the morning. Less time being in front of the mirror is a game changer right here. Being that time is one of the most important assets and resources we're short of. So if you can give more time to your customer, you've got a product and that's a breakthrough. Iris Smith is someone who had been unfairly dealt shitty cards, but she's managed to overcome it by reclaiming her life through her successful business. We chat about obsession with finding and solving problems, building awareness around your business and yourself and dealing with things like staff retention. So let's get into it. Iris Smith, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having me. You're a young person. Um, How do you become so accomplished? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> and I don't mean as successful in business as such. I just mean accomplished. Uh, you know, you were sitting here very confident. Um, you obviously got um, business interests throughout throughout the country and, you you know, your product go, is sold in other places in the world. Where did you get your uh, accomplished persona from? Uh, I think I was born with it, to be honest. I think... Uh, fundamentally it's just sort of in my blood, in my DNA. Tell me about that. Uh, so I was born in Perth but I yep. grew up in the country right. um, down in a, a country town called Dunsborough, which is like a surf town, yep. um, actually up in Yelling Up. Is that – that's north? North um, or, or Yelling Up? Is it south it, of It's Perth? down from Perth. It's down yeah. near Margaret River. That, yeah, 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 near Margaret River. Yeah. Um, you probably know Taj Barrow, the famous yeah, surfer. Yeah, yeah sure he's got do. a house up in Yelling Up. I don't surf though. <laughs> I'm one of the few who don't surf from that neck of the woods. Um, I think growing up, I had an interesting upbringing. Um, I I didn't meet my didn't meet my biological father until I was 20. So I was raised by my uh, my mum and her partner. And well, her partner being a, a stepfather. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't refer to him as that because I didn't have the most joyous of upbringings. Um, it was very abusive to be completely honest. And I think, I think after leaving home, so I left home when I was 17. Um, one of the main ways I kind of dealt with that was just working. Just, I had this drive to constantly work, constantly almost like prove myself, I guess, to the world. Um, and I just, I had this sense that I, I didn't want to end up like my mum. I wanted to be financially free, be able to support myself, stand on my two feet myself, Um, and I think there was also this wanting to be able to say that something was mine because growing up, I never had a sense that I owned everything. Everything was always taken away from me. When I left home, I just wanted to work. that's, That's just what I really, really wanted to do. And I wanted to be successful. I think part of it was just kind of proving to the world that I was worthy, which kind of became an unhealthy obsession in a way, because all I did was work. I had 
no other elements to my life pretty much. Could I just break that down just a little bit if you don't mind? Yeah. Um, so you know, I had unhappy childhood. Um, when, when that happens you tend to reflect on the people who are around you who sort of create create or don't create a happy childhood for you. Yeah. That's stepfather and to some extent you probably get disappointed in your mum. Um, in that regard, when you say you don't want to end up like your mum, describe what that is. I mean, do you mean her being reliant upon the dude she's with or what? What is it that you didn't want to be? Uh, I think it was being trapped and not being able to leave. Because financially? Yeah, financially and I think also just that lack of confidence. Someone just constantly abuse strips all of your confidence away. You think you're nothing. You think you're just dirt. You, you start believing that. Um, and, yeah, it's it's interesting because even though that person treats you like shit, you still idolise them in a sense in your mind. It's just such a – it's that uh, – what's that word? Um, Stockholm syndrome where yeah. you fall in love with your abuser. And I see it in my sisters. My sisters still haven't left that environment. They're younger? Yeah, they're younger, yeah. Um and I just, I just didn't want to be like that. I, I could see it. I could see it the whole time growing up and I think that's why I got so abused because I was constantly standing up for it because I knew it was wrong and my mum always used to say, just keep quiet, just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything, Iris. You've got such a big mouth. <laughs> yeah. So then did you, did you suffer guilt as a result um, of uh, speaking up? I don't know if it was guilt. It, it just made me more, it, it just lit the fire in me more to want to fight, to want to achieve something, to want to leave and, and do something to help myself and not end up like that. That's really interesting. Like, I mean, I can't say I've experienced that, nor do I really know anyone who's experienced that in, in an intimate sense. Mm. Um, I, I, I've always been interested in, you just mentioned the Stockholm Syndrome or, you know, sort of resorting to what's comfortable. That is, you're used to being abused if we just resort to it all it the time. It is a comfort factor. And it becomes generational too to some extent or can become generational to some extent. But on the flip side of it, there's someone like you who actually says, no, stuff that, that's not my, not going to be my go. That's not who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I just wonder how, what is the difference between the individuals? Why why do you think you're, you reject that? And I've thought about it, you know, a long time now. It's been 10 years since I left. I think in some way it actually played to my advantage that he wasn't biologically related to me. I think looking at my sisters, it's harder for them because it's like, but it's my father and it's my blood. Oh, and they're, they're biologically. Biologically yeah, related. Yeah. So Whereas, you're the half-sister, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. half half related. Yeah. So he wasn't my biological father. Yeah. He came into my life when I was five years old. So I, I think there wasn't that level of attachment yeah. that they necessarily have. Um, but also I was forced to leave. He he taunted me for years saying, the day you turn 17, you are out of this house. You ever step foot on, foot on my property again, like I'll kill you pretty much. Whoa. So I, I had no choice. And in a, in a sense, I think that was a blessing for me to actually leave. And it was always in my mind, like when I'm 17, I have to leave. So I was almost forced from the age of 14 in my mind, I thought I need to work and save and make sure I can financially support myself when I leave when I'm 17 years old. So you were preparing, prepping yourself yeah. for the day you turn 17. Pretty well, much. You probably <laughs> did your favour in some respects, which you've done very well since. But uh, as a 14-year-old girl, you're at school obviously, um, what are you thinking to yourself? Um, I think there's lots of parts to that question. Uh, I, think, I think the main thing is in my mind it was completely normal. For what? Just the whole situation. Living like that. Yeah, it was normal Well, that me. was your normal. Yeah, It was yeah, my yeah. normal. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like I sat and, oh, poor me, I have to go and work. Like it was just like, okay, I have to do this. Let me just get on with it and figure a way to make this work. Um, so, yeah, pretty much <laughs> I, I worked most days after school. I worked every weekend. For example, where? I worked at a chicken shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my first job. Um, yeah. How old? I was 14. 14, yeah. Yeah. So you like at the back of the joint cooking chickens? Or, pretty much. Uh, yeah, and it's a pretty, I mean, I, says like, I've been in those environments, pretty shitty job. 
because you, you never want to eat chicken again after you handled uh, all these raw ch- ch- chickens forever. It's wrong because I had a pet chicken as well. Oh my God. I feel ashamed to say it. Uh, and I named my chicken after the shop that I worked at. I didn't realise at Did the you? time. You named the chicken after the shop you worked yeah, at? the shop I worked at was called Charcoal Chicken and I yeah. called my chicken Charcoal. <laughs> That's, That's a bit weird. horrible, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I worked there. But do you know what? I, not once did I ever think, oh, this is shit. Mm. I, I don't want to stand here and I enjoyed it. I liked being out of the house and I liked interacting with people and I always got along so well with my bosses and like always developed like a, a friendship almost, I suppose. And um, So you slotted right into there quite easily. Yeah, yeah. And you did this for how long? Uh, so, well, 14 until 17. That chicken shop ended up closing, so I ended up working at a cafe as well, which honestly I look back and I think, one of the best times of my life. Like I just developed so much as a person, um, just being around people, being around other adults and they almost became like mentors to me as well and I shared with them what was going on at home so I had really good advice from them as well. Even someone I was working with offered, you know, a place to stay when I left home. So That's your earliest form of networking then to yeah. some extent. Yeah. And that network... Um, that you you met in the cafe, for example, and probably even customers to some extent because customers tend to come back all the time. You get to see people, the same faces all the time. You mm. become familiar, therefore you trust them. Indeed, they trust you and they probably enjoy your, um, you know, your interaction with them. Um, and it's a very early version of how do I network? Mm. Um, you probably weren't conscious of it at the time. No, I don't think so. Which is why I sort of say to a lot of young people, you know, just it's and it unfortunately doesn't happen that much these days but – Get out and get a job. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm. Uh, after school, weekends, Friday nights, whatever it is, just do this sort of stuff what, like what you did because it is part of the education yeah. of how to network, how to deal with people and what are, what have they got for me that I don't normally see at home because no one's perfect and in your case it was far from perfect but the parents never perfect um, and uh, there's always something extra you can get outside of that. And so what I'm finding here was really interesting is that you you sort of were like – a sponge for mm. all these experiences and that's probably helped you make that decision finally on the day I'm going to leave. Yeah. yeah. What was that day like? Horrible. <laughs> it was terrible. It's ingrained in my mind. Um, it's like a movie to me. I've sort of got this sort of <laughs> idea. No. Of um, I could probably make a movie about it. It's so bizarre some of the things that happened. Um, but, yeah, it was the day before my 18th birthday, uh, so I was still 17 technically at the time, and – a friend of mine who I went to high school with, I ended up confining in him and telling his parents what was going on and they actually offered me a place to stay in, at their house. Um, so, yeah, the day I, I, I left it was just packing up everything um, into my car and leaving. Does, but does everyone in your family at that stage know that's what you're doing or was it a surprise to them that you – Oh, no, they knew. It they was knew. told – it was said for years the day – you, if you're an, once you're an adult, you're not allowed to stay here anymore. So I knew for years the day was coming. Everyone knew. Um, Were you emotional that when you had to leave? Your, you got? Did you say you got sisters? Yeah. How many? Two. Two sisters. Is it a brother or just sisters? I've got two sisters. My family's very complicated. I've got two, two sisters from my mum's side, yeah, yeah. and then my biological dad. I've got three brothers who are a lot older than me. They're in their fifties. Um, so my dad was living a second life pretty much, um, had an affair with my mum. I came along and then he remarried and then has, um, a, a son and a daughter. Wow. So when did you decide to bury yourself in work? Yeah, it was still the cafe. Um, there was no sort of like moment where I said, okay, I'm going to bury myself in it. It was constant. I had done it since I was 14 pretty much. Um, and I forgot to mention I was also at the time I had like an online business selling on Etsy as well. What were you selling on Etsy? I was selling vintage clothes. Yep. So I would go down to my local church that had an op shop attached to it and would, you know, find things for a dollar or $2 and then put them online for $80. So I was doing a bit of both. I was doing that all throughout high school as well to try and save money plus working at the chicken shop and then the cafe. Was the objective to save money though? Iris, or was the objective to be in business? So 
were you consciously thinking I can buy that for a buck, sell it for 80 for argument's sake, oh, I've got $79 I can bank somewhere? And were you banking money or were you hiding it under the mattress? Well, what was your objective? I want to run business. I'm dying to run a business. Or I just got to save money for the day I get out of here. I think it was a bit of both. Um, yes, the objective was to save money, but I also enjoyed the whole part of running that Etsy store as well and um, – even before that, I like even I think I was six or seven years old, I used to do like paper origami and then go to school and try to sell it for five cents <laughs> to people. I don't know. I always had that like hustle in me. Um, I even made like lip balms at home. I got I got my mum to buy me all these Vaseline jars and then I'd mix them with all these essential oils and made all these lip balms and went to the ladies at church and tried to sell them for like $2. Made me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would always lock myself in my room and work on some sort of project. Yeah. I grew up thinking I was the worst person who ever walked this earth. I thought I was horrible. Who's ever going to like me? I really struggled with that self confidence and just thinking something was wrong with me because I thought, well, if someone's treating me like this, then I must deserve it. Otherwise, why would I be treated like this? Especially, an, a, you know, a, a person so close to you. Yeah. Like an adult. Yeah. In and your I think, life. I think also, like, I know I say he wasn't related to me, but I think the hard part is like when you have a parent, like a mother figure who doesn't do anything to stop it. So then you really start to question it. I've got these two people who are allowing this to happen, saying these things, treating me like this. Well, it must be true then. So then it was a breath of fresh air to then go out there and like, oh, wow, my boss is always complimenting me. Yeah. Saying what a good job I'm doing and how great I am with the customers. Which is, uh, by the way, just normal. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> which is normal. Um, I always say um, being able to access obsession as opposed to being obsessive in everything, but being able to access obsession is quite a big advantage when it comes to business. Um, at what point did your obsession for work mm. become um, an asset that you worked out how to access and how to drop off with? I think it's still a work in progress, I would say. It's definitely gotten better. Um, I think – I don't think I can just switch it off because my mind's always working and some of my great ideas come when I'm trying to think of them. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um. But I think on the topic of obsession, when I became unhealthily, unhealthily yep. obsessed, uh, would, would have probably been around 2018, um, around the time when my Shark Tank episode aired. Um, well, they take me through that then, 2018. So I started my business in 2017. Yep. Um, and I'd only really been working on it for about three months at the time. And I had a Daily Mail article published about the eyeliner stamp that I'd created. What is an eyeliner stamp, by the way? <laughs> so so winged eyeliner, it's a makeup look that's been around for a long time, since Cleopatra pretty much. But it's a it's a line that one draws on the edge of their eye to elongate the eye. Yep. But it's quite difficult to do. You have to do it freehand, have quite a steady hand, um, and a lot of people struggle with it. So what I created was an actual stamp that's pre-shaped in that wing. Yep. And it's got ink in it, so you just press it on your eye. Right. Were you invited onto the Shark Tank? Yeah. So the producer saw that article in the Daily Mail. Yep. And I, I didn't realise, but they were obviously also looking for potential candidates. Yep. She reached out to me. At first I thought it was like a scam email <laughs> and said, you know, I saw your article. Um, I'm looking for potential people to audition for the show. I really think you should audition. And I was still kind of working on my self-confidence a little bit then and I thought well I've only been doing this for three months like people who go on the show in my mind I had this preconceived idea people who go on the show they're you know years into their business journey so I sort of put it off for a little bit and then the submissions were due at midnight I was packing orders and working still I think it was one in the morning so I'd missed the submission cutoff and I don't know, this voice in my head just said, fuck it, Iris, just do it. Just get your phone out and just film it. So uh, it's like the rawest video ever. Like I'm just, a pitch. Uh, like a pitch. Yeah, my pitch, yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry, I speak to the camera. Hello, I'm Iris. This is my product. I was showing them. Just very, it's just authentic, I think. Yeah, yeah. Submitted it. 
the next day, literally, I got a phone call. I loved the video. It was so natural and raw. I'm going to take this, you know, to my boss and show them straight away. And then after that, get another call. We want you to come in and do like a fake Shark Tank pitch. So I did that. That was successful. I actually demonstrated on some of the male producers. They loved it. (laughs) And yeah, and then uh, long story short, ended up going on the show. Um, so that would have been, I think we filmed it in February, 2018. So at the start of. How old were you, were you in February, 2018? I think I was, I just turned 22 at the time. And, um, yeah, so we, we filmed that, uh, the, so I, I got a deal on the show. Um, I think I went in wanting, um, I think I had valued my business at 3 million at that point, um, and had and was asking for a ten percent share in exchange for three hundred thousand dollars, and I ended up um, getting the three hundred thousand dollars for a twenty-seven and a half percent share on the show. Long story short, I didn't end up taking the deal. Why? Um, well, one of the reasons is they film it in February, and they're obviously flat out with filming, so you don't actually hear from them for quite a few weeks later. So I only really got in touch with them pretty much just before the show was going to air did we start that whole process of the due diligence which is obviously a really long process and my business exploded in that period it went gangbusters I think by my fourth or fifth month I was already doing half a million dollars in revenue a month it was just an insane amount of growth um I'd had Priceline come to me and approach me to go into retail stores. So a lot of the things I'd gone in there wanting assistance and help with kind of just naturally came about. And I just reassessed everything and I thought, I don't, this isn't the right decision anymore. Um, Why did you want the 300000 in the first place? What, what, what were you seeking the capital for? Well, the main thing was launching into retail and, and funding new um, product development which I was able to do on my own during that period. I had one of the world's largest influencers, Huda Katan, who owns Huda Beauty. I think she had like 40 million followers at the time. She loved the product and she started writing about it on her blog and making videos about how, how this was the best eyeliner she'd ever used. And how did she find out about the eyeliner? I think just through social media. Her team just reached out and said, you know, we'd like to try it and have you send it to her. Um, and I also did this like very interesting a box that I sent it to her because I thought, okay, this lady's obviously getting thousands of packages. So I had um, a friend of mine do a self-portrait on this box, a painting of her. Of her. Yeah, and then inside the box we packed all the eyeliner stamps. So I think it was such an interesting package as well. It kind of inspired her to speak about it a little bit more. So that completely changed the business. And then obviously Shark Tank came about. That was great exposure, but... Not just that, it was all the publicity that followed after it. And what did that prove to you then? So what I mean by that is mm. you thought you needed $300,000 to spend on marketing or advertising or maybe employ a couple of marketing people, whatever you were going to do with that three hundred grand. But instead of – and you had to give, you were prepared to give away 10% and they offered to you 25% to be given away. Mm. So you save yourself equity. You save yeah. your equity. Sometimes we think we need money to do some marketing, but in fact, if we just get an influencer or someone who actually really digs our product, mm. we can do without all that fancy stuff that $300,000 spend. Yeah. I, I think the main thing was uh, learning the confidence in myself. I actually remember the moment when I made that decision. I'm not going to go through with this because everyone around me was saying, you should take it. Um, my partner at the time was saying it's such a good deal. How could you, how could you be so stupid to turn it down? I was the only one actually questioning it. Is this really right for me? And I thought in that moment, I remember making the decision and I was like, I'm going to fucking do this myself. Back yourself. Yeah. It was that real, like, I have got this. I don't need anyone else at this point. I can do this myself. And I did. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a big learning curve for me that, you know, I, I had the ability to do it myself and I had up until that point, and, yeah, one post can change everything. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it also sort of talks about patience. I mean, like just don't be in a hurry, mm. you know, like because that one post could may may not come. But that 300000 even if you hadn't have 
had no chance, for example, of um, getting her to do, put it up on on her social media. That three hundred thousand probably wouldn't have produced what you wanted to no, produce anyway. I don't think so. Looking you, back, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, irrespective of that, the three hundred thousand dollars would not have done that. And a lot of people think, oh, should I just need three hundred grand or half a million dollars, and I can really spend it on more marketing and etc. When in actual fact, what the product is saying to you is, no, no, chill, just do this over time mm. and just build organically yeah. as opposed to just rushing it with a whole lot of cash and giving away equity. Yeah. And then you've got a partner you've got to deal with, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sometimes not that easy. You know, yeah, like everyone thinks partners are going to do everything, going to fix all my problems for me. In actual fact, sometimes they create problems. And, I, and it's not always the case, but they can create problems. 
oh, maybe, maybe when this happens, it will make me feel better. Maybe when I get this deal or when we launch this product. And I did, I just exhausted everything. And I still felt like it wasn't good enough. I was still empty inside. Were you searching or running away? <sighs> I think I was, I think a bit of both. I was running from actually facing it and, and properly processing everything that had happened. I think I hadn't ever stopped for a minute and just thought, let me process all this fucked up shit that happened to me growing up. And I think it was just, it was mentally starting to eat at me. But I think there was still that element of searching a little bit, but I think it was more the running. Um, Did you just stop and say, okay, I'm going to deal with this now? Yeah, pretty much. It, it came to a head when I had, uh, it was the, this one evening I was driving home super late from work and I just thought in my mind, I was saying to myself, I am so fucked. I, I you mean as in tired or fucked up mentally? I'm, bro- I'm broken. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fucked got, human being. Got nothing being. left. I got, yeah, I just thought uh, I'm trying everything and it's still not working. And I thought maybe I'm just unfixable. That's, I, I thought that I was broken. Something was wrong with me, I thought. Well, that's something you've been brought up with. That's yeah. what someone's been telling you. It was these old patterns coming in. And I was driving home and I was saying to myself, just wish there was a reset button on my life. I wish I could just go to sleep and never wake up. And then I, and then there's always like there's these two irises living in me. There's like the older, more mature iris. And I'm like and saying to myself, no, fuck that iris. Like that's not true. Look how far you've come. Like. You're in control of your life. Like you can fix this. You don't need to buy into this victim mentality. There's all these, these two people talking in my head. Um, and then, yeah, then and there is when I made that decision. I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to pick myself up here. I, and that's when I did this full cleanup of my entire life. It was like I took a checklist of everything that needed to change. All the things that gave you shits. Everything was Pretty no much. good. Well, yeah, because I'd been creating this reality from this toxic mindset. So I was attracting people that sort of complemented this toxic mindset of mine. So then I realized, okay, my my boyfriend's actually really toxic and he's feeding into this and I'm recreating the reality that I experienced growing up into the the boyfriend that I have in his family and my friendship group. You're making a, a generational. So what you've just experienced. The cycle continues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you had to have a cut. <laughs> yeah. And I made that cut. They, everyone, but that day, that night? Pretty much, yeah. It was a, f- a few days after that. You've got to be brutal, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, for your own benefit. Everyone thought I was horrible for doing it. How could you do such a thing? Well, what did you do? Like did you ring the dude up and say, look, it's over? I mean, how do you do that? Well, we were living with each other. Yep. So I sat down and had a conversation and said, I don't think we can be in a relationship anymore. Well, no, I don't think. I, we can't be in a relationship anymore. It's not working. Um, and how did he take that? Not very well. <laughs> she came out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. Um, his family didn't take it well at all. But yeah, yeah, it was a massive. They tried to guilt trip me. How could you do this to us after everything we did for you? And I just thought, well, this is even more reason to leave. I, I, start, I just saw everything clearer. Yeah. Just it just woke me up. And so, yeah, I sort of culled all of that and. So what did you cull out? So you got, you, you terminated the relationship with the boyfriend. Yeah. You terminated the relationship as a result of that with his family. I then started to go and get therapy. Yep. So I saw a therapist for the first time ever. Well, that's good. Yeah. And that was an interesting story how that all came about. Um, she was actually a hypnotherapist and, um, that was a massive catalyst for me because and a lot of the sessions that we did ended up allowing me to cull even more stuff. So I actually changed my entire team as well because, again, I realised I was building this team that was kind of toxic and I think you speak about in some of your other videos about tall poppy syndrome and that was exactly what was happening. I was choosing people who were going to pull you down, trying to pull me down yeah, but that, in my own business. Yeah, but yeah, I know, but that's because that's what you're used to. It's what I was attracting. Yeah, it's what yeah, I yeah. wanted. Yeah, it's well, you're also attracted to it too, by the yeah, way, exactly. like in a weird sort of way. Yeah, yeah, you are, 100%. When someone's night was nice to me, I thought, why are they nice to me? What's mm. their hidden agenda? What are they trying to get out of me? Um, it was but when people were horrible, it was normal in my mind, weirdly. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did a full change there. And, um, yeah, just, I pretty much changed everything about my lifestyle because I started to change internally. So then my external 
naturally became a reflection of what was going on inside. Um, so yeah, a massive change in my business and my business actually started to become more successful because I started not working from this frame of mind of I need to work and prove because I'm not good enough. It was actually, I'm actually fucking good at what I do. I have this natural ability. Let me just go out there and create and have fun rather than let me create to escape. So then that's, that's a really big difference. Mm. You were always creating to escape. Yeah. But now you're creating to enjoy. Yeah. The, the, to the play. outcomes. Yeah. And to make it a fun thing. Yeah. And, and because that makes you become more passionate. You really love what you're doing then. Mm. There's a different energy behind it. Yeah. And yeah. It, that's quite interesting. And uh, uh, in that process, apart from the numbers being better, becoming or becoming better, how did you sort of change your personal life? In other words, did you start to do things like uh, change what you eat, uh, change exercise regimes, uh, maybe maybe holiday environments or what did you change in terms of your own behaviours as opposed to the people around you? Yeah, it's interesting because I actually started training less. So I was obsessed with training. I would go to the gym twice a day, like way too much, just thrashing myself. Um, and I think it was, again, that desire to constantly want to be stressed and that adrenaline and run down and let me just go there and smash my body. My my PB for a deadlift, by the way, is 127 kg. Wow. <laughs> um, which I'm pretty proud of. But um, I actually started training less and and not trying to smash myself constantly and not having that addiction to the stress constantly because um, it was just completely burning me out. So I changed that and I, I started seeking more exercises and um, activities that actually brought me to a place of calm and peace. So a lot more Pilates, med- meditations and yoga and sound healing. I know it sounds very woo-woo, but no, actually, no, I really it's, enjoy it. No, but it's right. It's right though. <laughs> yeah. So it was that just finding that balance, that the, the, the calm to sort of complement the storm that was sometimes happening. Um, Food-wise, I didn't really change. I've always eaten quite well. Um, and, and I did actually end up um, finding a new boyfriend who's completely opposite to my previous partner. And like I said before, he was such a lovely person. I started questioning what's his motives? Why is he so nice? To the point where I actually tried to sabotage the relationship, created this idea in my mind that, yeah, he's got this hidden agenda I called him up and said, I can't be with you because you're too nice. And he ended up speaking to me and saying, you know, you you are doing this because you've actually found, you know, you've found something good and you're trying to sabotage it because you don't believe that you deserve it. So he he was actually really good in um, complimenting me throughout my journey. So, yeah, there there was a few things in my personal life that changed as well as in my business. So sort of in some ways a full circle, but I sort of got a sense of, the answer to the question I first asked you, why are you so accomplished? Um, because for a 27-year-old, at a personal level, apart from your business success, at a personal level, because I could just see you're accomplished by the way you sat. I could just, you know, you just gave me that vibe. Because you've built an awareness about yourself. You, you've you learnt about yourself. You learnt that smashing yourself in the gym doesn't really work for you. Some yeah. people it does work. For, for you it doesn't work. In fact, what you need to do is things that complement you and actually can – balance your um, your fierceness mm. in terms of the way you work and the way you approach things. Yeah. And then that balances you down like you do yoga, Pilates, meditation, et cetera. That, that awareness process, have you applied that awareness process about yourself? Have you applied that awareness process then in terms of your business? And what I mean by that is um, your products or your product lines, um, do you – try to empathize with your customer, what is it that my customer is really trying to get from my product? They want to feel um, they, they, they want to feel beautiful. They want to feel comfortable. I mean, do you actually go through that process yourself of analyzing what my customer expects from my product and therefore I'll make sure my product delivers it? Mm. That's an awareness program relative oh, to your customer. Yeah, no, definitely. There's, there's definitely awareness around, in particular around certain pain points that people – come across when using conventional makeup products. Can you explain that to me? Because I don't know the market makeup industry at yeah, all. Yeah. For example. So for example, I 
just for myself personally, but I also consider and, and speak to other people and what problems are you facing when doing your beauty routine in the morning. But when I approached developing a product, say for example, my first one, the eyeliner stamp, I thought, okay, this is how eyeliner has been around for centuries. This is how people apply it. We think it's the normal way to apply but there's still all of these problems like can't get the line straight. My hand shakes. How do I draw a straight line when I've got a shaky hand or I've got bad eyesight and have to wear glasses when I put makeup on? Like how do I get around this? How do you do that? Yeah. Exactly. So I think, okay, how can I create a, a product that still gets you the same result, a nice wing, but it solves these problems and, and it gets around them somehow. And it's consistent too. It's the same every time. Exactly, yeah. So I've done that with every product that I've developed. For example, um, I created a an eye, another eyeliner, which acts as like a lash glue. So normally if you were applying false lashes to your eyes, you would have to get glue, apply it to the strip, get the perfect timing. You have to wait about 20 seconds for the glue to go tacky. And then you've got one shot to apply that to your eye. Perfect. The first go. And if you don't, you've got to peel the glue off, reapply. Like it's just a nightmare. So I created a solution to that by having the eyeliner, you draw it on your eye and then you can reattach the lash as many times as you want. And um, it's just supplied like a normal eyeliner rather than having a glue and having to wait to get the perfect, you know, time for it to dry and whatnot. So yeah, there's definitely awareness about what problems are people facing when applying their beauty. How can we make it easier? How can we make it quicker as well? Because people don't want to spend an hour in the mirror every day applying their makeup, especially with COVID, that completely changed our routines. People don't have an hour to put their face on anymore. They just want to look natural and be done in five minutes. Don't look like they woke up that way. Yep, as Beyonce says. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then the other part of it is there's a, a, an awareness of people not feeling like they're represented in conventional beauty campaigns, advertisements, magazines. You open, you know, the magazines and it's kind of the same person, a 19-year-old blonde model. There's just, it's gotten better. Like when I started it, it was bad, but it's definitely gotten better over the years. But people still feel like they're not represented in the products that they're purchasing. So something that I'm really proud of and I've done since I started is every single model that we use in our campaigns are real customers. So I'm pretty sure we're the only beauty brand to ever have only used real customers in their campaigns, in their videos, in photo shoots. We've never, ever used a single model. So we're actually utilizing the people who use our products and representing them in the images. So it's and, more real. Yeah. It's, it's, I always say, you know, it's um real, real beauty, real quick is our motto. And it's it's representing the people who actually use it. So they feel like they can actually identify with this brand. I can actually see myself in that woman there. It's not just a model who do, doesn't actually use the products. That's what always gets me. It's like you're going to use someone in your campaigns who's never used your product before. She didn't even apply the product. She's had a makeup artist on yeah, set yeah. applying it. And I've also heard through the grapevine, sometimes they don't even use the real product on set. They'll put something else on. Um, and the same with, with skincare as well is the model will have a full face of makeup on and she's applying a cream over the top of the makeup. You're like a moisturizer or something? Yeah. Which doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. It's just, it's false advertising. It really is. When you went out and saw the hypnotherapist for yourself, you, mm -hmm. you were seeking assistance as to how to deal with the stuff that you were trying to deal with. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and then you made all these major changes in your life. Um, when you go out to find a product, you do you talk do you talk to third parties or do you sit down and say, I am Iris and my little team here, we're gonna create a solution to the problem. Do you go out and find it but or do, or do you go out and find out what the problem is? Talk to real people out there and then actually get them to sort of nearly build the solution for you, but you just go and engineer it. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit of both. So some of the products have been a direct response to problems that I've personally experienced. And then when I've gone back and asked our community, um, so we've got a Facebook group of about 10,000 people who are always and posting there and speaking to them about certain issues that they're experiencing. You personally? Yeah, yeah, me personally. So I'll even say, you know, hey, I'm working on a product that's like this. What do you think? Would you use this? Um, do you think this would solve a problem that you've currently got? 
So I'll, I'll use that. Sometimes the idea comes from myself, but sometimes it also comes from customer feedback. People actually saying, you know, can you create a, pr- a product that does this or solves this um, problem? And also just, you know, looking out on what's happening on social media. How are people applying their makeup? Like I watch videos. How are people doing things? What are they saying on their videos that they're struggling with or they have difficulty with? Um, there's hour long get ready videos with me on YouTube. So you can watch that and kind of just sense what are pain points with other products that they're using. Um, so for example, one of the, uh, products that I created is a clear sunscreen spray that also acts as a makeup setting spray. So when you apply your sunscreen, it's only really going to work for about two to three hours. And then you have to reapply. If you're wearing a full face of makeup, how am I going to put cream over the top of my makeup? And a lot of people were actually saying that as well. Like, you know, I love my sunscreen, but how do I reapply it if I'm in the office and I've got a full face of foundation on? So then in response to that, I created a a spray that gives you SPF 50 plus and also helps to set your makeup. So it's a little bit of both is, is actually watching. Okay. So how are people currently dealing with how they're reapplying their sunscreen? So I'm watching lots of videos of people using, they call them beauty blenders, which are like sponges. So they will put the cream on the sponge and then press it over the top of the makeup. But maybe the person's like, oh, it just, it makes my foundation feel really sticky. So then I have to go in and put powder on to set it. And I'm just like, this is so complicated. There has to be an easier way to do it. So and it's a bit of both. So and, your, and your solution is to spray it on. It's a spray. You just, yeah. takes you two seconds. Yeah, but that's a sunscreen. It's a sunscreen uh, spray yeah. that, but is that a makeup sets sunscreen. over the makeup. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. So, but it sounds to me though that, I don't think you're obsessed. I just think you're very curious. Um, and you, Obsessively curious maybe. Yeah, yeah, and you take that curiosity. In other words, you turn that curiosity into a scientific process. In other words, you try to build a deduction based on a whole lot of, a whole lot of um, inputs, mm. the deduction being the outcome, the final product. And I think that's just a good way to think. Um, obsessive to me today would mean to me today that um, – you're still working to 1am every day, seven days a week when perhaps your business could afford to employ someone to take mm. some of the work away from you. Some of the more, less micromanageable work, in other words, you're obsessive. So you're not, a, you're not an obsessive micromanager, are you? No. Okay. You're um, not the person who thinks they, they're the only person who can do everything. No. Um, you're not someone who's still working to one or two in the morning and getting up at five the next day, seven days a week. You might do it occasionally, but you're not, yeah, not, not all doing, the time. No, no, not all the time. Um, but you are chasing the rabbit down the hole and making sure you follow where the rabbit's got to go to because you want to get a solution. Mm. So that's uh, more, I think today that, that I would consider that to be healthy behaviour mm. as opposed to an unhealthy behaviour, which is probably where you started. Um, I mean, I, I think, for example, um, employing people around you who are going to give you a hard time because that's what you used to as a kid, that's an unhealthy obsession. Absolutely. It seems to me your process and your behaviour is more, and I'm not a psychologist, but just observing, seems to be more a um, healthy curiosity but with an outcome always in mind. Mm. You're, a, you're a solution-based person. You like, to, you like to come up with solutions. And in actual fact, you might be obsessed about finding problems and solving them. Maybe Possibly. that's your obsession. <laughs> well, you're on Facebook and you're saying, well, what, what would you like me to solve? You're like a, you know, you're like the uh, alchemist, you know. Yeah, you're I, th- I watch people when they are in Priceline looking at products. I'm like, what do they do? How do they pick the box up? Do they turn it around and read the back? Yeah, I'm a bit obsessive like that. Well, that's, <laughs> but, that's but that's alchemy. That That's, mm. you know, that's alchemists have existed forever. Um, you know, the old days they used to say they could turn lead into gold. But you're trying to create solutions for problems. And, uh, you know, lead was a problem, gold was an outcome, a great outcome. You're just cre- trying to create solutions for problems. And maybe that sort of goes back to when you were a kid, you know, you had a problem at home and mm. uh, you created solutions for yourself by locking yourself in the bedroom and, yeah. and um, you know, selling stuff on Etsy or whatever it was, you know, uh, or, you know, making um, lip balm with uh, all these cool cool um, essential oils perhaps, fragrances, mm. et cetera. It's funny how we be, we still do the same thing as adults but with a lot more refinement and uh, sophistication and maturity that we did when we were kids. But mm. we just, if we're healthy, mentally healthy, we just chop out all the shit parts 
And for a 27 year old, you've, you've done that. So where's your business now? Yeah. So QuickFlix doing exceptionally well. We've got a, a whole product line now, not just the eyeliner. We've really come a long way since then. Um, and our models changed slightly. So when I started, it was pretty much just e-com and now we're largely in retail as well. Not just in Australia, Australia, UK, US, New Zealand, Singapore, um, just launched into Europe, just about to launch into UAE. So kind of going global, I guess you could say. And my other brand, Beauty Fridge, which we haven't spoken too much about, I started that in 2019, so it's not as um, mature as uh, the Quick Flick. Uh, that's, that's actually mainly retail at the moment. So we sell into Target and also farmers in New Zealand. Farmers, the store. Yeah, it's, the store. It's like yeah. David Jones, yeah. Yeah. So that's just Australia and New Zealand at the moment just because that's a slightly more difficult product to distribute because of the electrical requirements and different plugs for different regions and safety. It's it's quite a complicated process. So just started with um, Australia and New Zealand initially. And what's Beauty Fridge? What is it? Beauty Fridge is an actual fridge um, that's designed to house your cosmetic and skincare products at a cool temperature, but you can also switch it over to the hot temperature as well. So the idea is using your products um, cold is it's nicer on the skin. It can reduce redness, inflammation, and then you can also switch it to the hot setting to use it like for facial oils or massage oils, hot towels if you're doing like a facial at home. Um, so, yeah, it just sits on your on your cabinet and you keep all your products in it. And today, what sort of turnover are we talking about just generally? I mean, are we turning up big numbers? Because, I mean, you said that your business was worth, um, I think you said $3 million bucks back mm. in 2018. It's come a long first, way since then. Since the Shark Tank. <laughs> so if you managed to build that business to a, you know, really something you're really quite comfortable with in terms of value and do you have partners? Yes, yeah, so I've, I've, I've built it to a point where I'm, really proud of, which is crazy for me to say, because remember how I was saying nothing's ever good enough. Um, but I'm really, really proud of how far I've come with that. Um, I don't have partners no at the moment. Partner. No, it's just me. Um, and you talk about multi-million dollars of turnover. Yeah. Annually that is. Yeah. Yeah. And how many people do you employ? So another interesting, you know, thing to go back to about changing your entire business when I started, I, again, I had this idea in my mind, I have to have an office in Perth, everyone must work in the office, employees. When COVID happened, that completely changed and um, moved pretty much my entire team remote. I only had a few staff members working at that time because I've, I've always had an interesting balance between direct employees and then using freelancers, contractors, agencies, um, third parties for 3PL services. So um, at the moment, you'll be shocked. I actually don't have any direct employees. Or contractors. Yeah. yeah. So everyone is um, either just freelancer. And or do and charge. Pardon? Like you do and charge. They do the work, they charge you for the, for the hours yeah. they work. Or they're an agency working on a retainer. But I think that's perfect. I, I love it. It works so well for me. And I think the main thing that I love is that these are people running their own businesses. So they just get it. Um, and I just feel like I'm on the same wavelength with me, with them. It, it just really works for me and there's no right or wrong way, obviously. But it, again, it was that interesting journey of trying to explore and, and understand what worked for me as a person. Can I ask you one final question? We're sort of in two parts. Have you forgiven everybody? Not forget it, but have you forgiven everybody and have you forgiven yourself? Yes. So forgiveness. And it's interesting because I watched your other, um, with Danny Abdallah. Yeah. About forgiveness. And I, and I really related to that. Um, and I always use the analogy that not, not forgiving and holding that resentment is like drinking poison yourself and hoping the other person's going to die because it, it just continues to eat away at you. So yes, I have forgiven what's happened. And I think a part of that was also understanding that the reason I was treated like that is because they had a really shit upbringing. And it, it's not 
anyone's fault that it happened, but it was still their responsibility for it not to continue happening. And that's sort of what I've realized as well. It's not my fault what's happened to me, but it's now my responsibility that this doesn't continue with me. To another generation. To another generation or to my kids or to just to, not even to your own kids, just to other people. Or like, just to yourself. Yeah, and to yourself. And a part of realizing that is forgiving what's happened. Otherwise you stay stuck in that victim mentality and you stay stuck drinking that poison and hoping it's hurting other people when it's just hurting yourself. As I said, for 27, you're very accomplished. Uh, do you have any questions for me? Yes. Yeah, so one of my questions, I'm going to refer to an interesting video that I watched from Simon Sinek, who I'm sure you're familiar with. And he did this controversial video around millennials who are, I'm a millennial and why millennials aren't succeeding. And he said that we were raised with parents who fucked us up and has resulted in a generation that's overly entitled. They feel extra special. They get last place medals. Um, snowflakes. Yeah. <laughs> snowflakes. And they have this desire for instant gratification. And he said that that's transcended into the workplace and everyone feels entitled. They feel like they all should get pay rises. They can't communicate properly. And he actually mentioned that he believes it's the company's responsibility to make up for where the parents fucked up. The business. Yeah, yeah. business's responsibility to actually um, educate their team of millennials. Um, my question for you is around, and I refer back to another point that you made where you described yourself as hard but soft. So how do you approach someone who maybe exhibits some of those characteristics in a way that's hard but soft without actually abandoning your own personal beliefs and, and and not sort of going against what you believe in, in a way that benefits both that person and yourself? Well, I take the view that my, it's not my job to change anybody, but it's my job to make sure that I have, let's call it um, harmony, but workability. So I'm, I'm not there to change anyone's view on the world, um, particularly millennials. Um, but at the same time, they've got to work for me or they've got to work in my environment. So my job is to work out how they fit into my business and I my business therefore fits into their their way of life too. So I basically just divorce myself from any emotion around it. I don't make a judgment at all. I, mean, I do. It does happen but I have to give myself an uppercut and say stop that. Work out how this particular individual is going to work within your environment. And it's not about me being particularly patient. Um, I'm – I'm not very patient, to be frank with you, but I've had to sort of learn how to become much more patient. Um, and, but always because I, I take the view that my role is to make the, my business work. Mm. You know, it won't work on, on my own. It doesn't work on my own. I can't do it all. I can do some parts, but not all of it. So therefore, irrespective of my personal view of a a person's personality or how they got brought up or their expectations of what they're entitled to or they're not entitled to, it's all fucking bullshit. It's all irrelevant. Mm. I've got to work out how that individual, if they have the skills and they're a quality person, a good person, and, a, and they have the right views, and I don't mean political views, I mean they're there for the right reasons, then how do I get this business to work with them? Mm. So I sort of have to recut myself or recut the business to work with an individual. So I do my best to fit in with them. I'm not always perfect, by the way. I fuck it up all the time. But but I'm conscious of it. Yeah. That's the difference. And I'm not one of these guys who say, fuck that, unless they comply. I mean, I have been down that track. I mean, I, I ran a TV show called The, the Apprentice when I said, you're fucking fired. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, that's that old school. That's why I don't do that show anymore because that is old school. That doesn't work anymore. It's an old format. Yeah, people don't respond. It, it doesn't to it work. Anymore. I mean, I can push as hard as I want against the tide, but the tide will eventually get me. And so, and I just, I'll be honest, like, it's, I don't want brain damage pushing against the tide. I, I want an easier life. Hmm. I want my life to be not more enjoyable, but sort of easier. And I'm not saying I give into it either, but I'm just accepting and aware and, uh, you know, awareness of what it is I can and can't do. And ultimately, as I said earlier, it's about making sure I do the right thing by the business, not the right thing by myself. It's not about me. It's about the business. What's right for my business? And ultimately, that's about my audience. So I have to deliver something to my audience. Mm. 
in my audience, in my financial services business are borrowers. You know, I've got, you know, two and a half thousand people working that business across Australia. Um, I can't push against all those people who are a certain age group who have a view on what they're entitled to, irrespective of how fucked up I might think that is mm. or how different that is to the way I live my life. And uh, they might think I'm fucked up anyway and maybe I am. <laughs> maybe we're all <laughs> fucked up. We're all fucked we up. We all are a little bit. <laughs> so therefore just make it work, Mark, and your job, you're the, you're the senior person, you're the mature person, you've been around a long time, make it work. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. I just make it work. So that is soft and hard. That's how I operate. And it's not being, be, me being soft or being um, compromising. It's not about a compromise. I don't even see it as a compromise. I just got to make it work. No choice. Yeah. Thanks very much. All right. Iris Smith, that was awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I've learned lots about myself as well. <laughs> it helps when you're talking about it. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.